The Bob Murphy Show, episode 169. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I am interviewing Mario Rizzo, who, among other things, was my dissertation chair at NYU. So that element of our familiarity should be known to you to make sense of this conversation. But in this interview, we do what I often do with people who've been around in the Austrian school for a long time is he tells us about the early years, some fun stories, and then we transition and talk about his more recent work. Just for the sake of completeness, let me go ahead and read to you from his official bio here. Mario J. Rizzo is a professor in the Department of Economics at New York University and the co-director of the Classical Liberal Institute at the NYU Law School. He teaches a yearly seminar at NYU School of Law on classical liberalism. He's also the director of the program on the foundations of the market economy in the Department of Economics. In 2014, a third greatly expanded edition of The Economics of Time and Ignorance was published, co-authored with Gerald P. O'Driscoll Jr., called Austrian Economics Reexamined: The Economics of Time and Ignorance. Most recently, he's the author with Glenn Whitman of Escaping Paternalism, Rationality, Behavioral Economics, and Public Policy. He's currently working on legal rules, the economics of Frank H. Knight, and the philosophy and psychology of William James. And in this interview, folks, we talk about some of that more recent work. So without further ado, here is my interview of Mario Rizzo. Well, Mario, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So I think we should start out, as I normally do with people who are you know, well-known in the Austrian tradition. Can you just explain... Like when you were younger, how did you first get involved in economics? And, you know, when did you know you wanted to be a professor? Yeah. Uh, in a sense, I, I could say this, but sounds funny. Uh, in a sense, I owe it all to Richard Nixon um, and Henry Hazlitt, of course. The mm-hmm. uh, reason I say Richard Nixon is because in the 1960 presidential campaign, uh, I was uh, 11 or 12 at the time, and um, I heard the candidates talking about inflation. And I was wondering, well, what, what is inflation? What is this all about? And uh, when I found out it was about rising prices, I took a particular interest because the price of comic books was rising from 10 cents to 12 cents. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of my uh, welfare uh, stand, uh, status, uh, comic books. So uh, anyway, I went to the library and I found this book called Economics in One Lesson. And it seemed like, you know, well, that was a quick way to, to learn something. So I took the book out and I read it. Um, and this is when you were 12? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, yeah, well, I, I read it. And I, I, um, I didn't quite understand everything, but uh, I looked in the back uh, and there's a bibliography, at least in the edition I had, which refers you to Hayek and Mises and all that stuff. So... All right, so I put that in the back of my head. Then I went to high school and I joined the debate team. And the debate team, uh, in the years that I was on it, 
the topics were pretty much economic. Uh, there was a, there was a topic on free trade and uh, some other some other issues. So that furthered my interest in economics, and then I had this bibliography from uh, from Hazlitt, and I read some of those things. And r- remarkably, through high school, uh, I, I began you know, to confirm in my own mind that I wanted to study economics when I got to college. Um, but the interesting thing is that my first exposure to economics was really Austrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later, I, I, I became increasingly aware that that was not the, the mainstream and that there was Keynesian and all that other stuff. And, uh, and so, of course, when I went to college, I learned all of that. So it started out with a political interest, and, uh, and then it uh, then Hazlitt's book kind of magically came along. Because, you know, one lesson I think was the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if somebody young wants to learn quickly. One lesson sounds good, and uh, and then the debate uh, encouraged further interest in economics. Etc. Yeah, it was. I recently reviewed because uh, I had Jeff Dice on, and they were doing a promotion, giving away copies of Henry Hazlitt's book. So I went and you know flipped through it again, and I was amazed at the at the end of the you know the for further reading, at least like you say in the version that I was looking at, where Hazlitt he's read a lot of stuff. You know, I didn't read all the stuff that he was citing as in terms of you know he was yeah, not just yeah. doing Mises and Hayek, but like Philip Wicksteed and all kinds of right. stuff, and even things like I said, people I've never even read. So. It was, uh, yeah. he, he was a remarkable writer to be sure. I'm curious, do you remember, so in the debate thing, like, did you have to argue against free trade if you were assigned that, you know, for the particular result? Well, uh, okay. Uh, the way it worked then in my high school was that, um, you pretty much started out specializing on one side of the issue. And remarkably, uh, and the free trade issue, which was free trade for like a free trade zone for uh, the Americas, Latin America and the U.S., I started out on the negative, being against free trade. Uh, and then, um, do, do you mean then you were assigned that, or you're personally you were personally against it? Um, I don't know whether I uh, I was assigned it. Um, I don't think I was personally against it. I think I, I think I either was assigned it or it was that other people had taken the affirmative mm-hmm. and that was left over right. or something okay. like that. So I kind of accidentally, I would say, got into the negative. Um, but um, uh, but then by the end of the semester, we were supposed to be able to debate both sides. Uh, and so that's, you know, that that's what happened there. Another uh, topic was... Uh, expansion of social security to include uh medical care so kind of a medicare kind of thing mm-hmm. uh and uh i guess there was one there was one uh topic on nuclear proliferation uh and i forget what the the fourth topic was but um but that whole thing that whole debate sort of stuff got me very interested in social science and economics and and that kind of thing and uh, even now when I go back and I look at my school yearbook, uh, you know, I didn't really know much about Mises those days in high school, but I read a little bit because Hazlitt recommended it. And I see like my fellow uh, classmates writing things about me and Mises or something. <laughs> Somebody wrote about uh, you and Ludwig von Miser 
and and something like that. So I had gotten into Mises in a limited way in uh, in high school as well. Um, but the college experience. Do you want me to go on to that? Oh, yeah, certainly. Okay. Uh, the college experience was interesting in the sense that, well, of course, I became an economics major, but I had pretty much by that time had strong biases toward, you know, Austrian kind of approaches. But then in college, I, I met um, uh, Jim Sadowski, a Jesuit a priest at uh, at Fordham, who was also uh, an Austrian economist, even though he was a philosophy professor, but he knew quite a lot about uh, Mises and, uh, and, uh, and Rothbard. Uh, and then through him, I met Jerry O'Driscoll and, uh, and then ultimately met Murray Rothbard. So this is during college. So mm-hmm. simultaneously going on with my regular courses, I had this small group of people who were Austrians and encouraged my Austrianism there. And, uh, in a sense, it culminated with a paper that uh, Jerry and I wrote for a course on monetary theory. He was one year ahead of me mm-hmm. uh, at Fordham, in which uh, the first part of the uh, of the uh, paper condemned uh, empirical research um, and then went on to the Austrian business cycle theory. That was kind of a disjointed paper, but it gave the spirit of what we of what we were thinking at the time. Uh, but Meaty Murray uh, was important. Uh, he was very encouraging, uh, gave me bibliographies on on various topics. Uh, don't forget, this is the late 60s, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And Murray, uh, in a way, by the late 60s, at least up to the late 60s, he was pretty current in his knowledge of what was going on in economics broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got a lot of that in, you know, writing Man, Economy, and State, but he pretty, pretty much knew what was going on. Uh, later, he lost contact with a lot of the, the, the more, uh, you know, current stuff. But so he was able to provide uh, lots of interesting uh, articles and stuff, and, uh, and so that was, that was very helpful. Could, did you grow up in New York? Yeah. Okay. Is that why you went to Fordham or was that a coin? Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that's what, well, I went to Fordham partly because I was in New York. Uh, I had some alternatives, but I never at that time, I guess because my parents were not uh, that well off, uh, I never really thought about the possibility of going away to college. And even, uh, even the idea scared me a little bit. So uh, I was going to go t- in New York and come down to NYU because I got in here. But I, I thought the place was kind of, I mean, everything that NYU is today and was when you were a student here mm. was more so in the sense of the lack of a campus, uh, the lack of any sort of, even even at that time, most students, at least a lot of students were part-time. So there wasn't a real sort of college experience. Right. That's actually what I tell people too. If they ask me, I said I, NYU was great for grad school. You know, if it's if it's yeah. a program's appropriate. But I said for college, you're not going to college. You're going to New York City if you go to NYU. You're going to New York City, yeah. And I came down here and I I looked at the place, and I I was uh, you know the building that's now called Silver. It was used to be called Main, uh, and at the time. Uh, it hadn't been renovated. So this is where I went for some sort of interview at NYU. And I went into the building and there were these large elevators and there were these uh, people that were, you know, a la the uh, Tokyo subway 
whose job it was to push people into the elevators to during, you know, between classes to make sure that everybody got up to the right, uh, right floor. And the elevators were these old elevators with chains. Uh, and it was sort of rickety and awful. <laughs> so I gave away, then I went to the Fordham campus and it was beautiful mm-hmm. and people were friendly and it was a real school, you know, as I, so I went there. Okay. Partly I asked because I was wondering, I, um, I rem- when I, let's see, so I was in Chicago. So I went to Hillsdale college for undergrad. Then I, I graduated early. So I was at Chicago and then I was talking, you know, to you on the phone and, when you said I got accepted to NYU and I mentioned I was in Chicago and you said something like, yeah, Chicago's all right though. It's just too small for me or something like me. (laughs) (laughs) And of course me having come from Hillsdale, Chicago was this huge metropolis. And so I was like, well, this guy, Mario Rizzo is next level. This is funny. (laughs) So so that's what, when you said you were, I, I forget the exact word you just used five minutes ago, but maybe afraid to go away. Was it, was it you didn't you thought you'd go nuts if you weren't in a big city or you you like you didn't want to be no, far from home? I just, yeah, far from oh, home. Okay. I wasn't. Uh, I don't know. I just didn't feel okay. comfortable about. It. So can I ask? Did you? I'm trying to get the timeline right. So Man Economy and State had already been published when you were at Fordham. Yeah. So did you read that? Yeah. Had you read that before you met Rothbard? Yeah. I, uh, I read. Yes, I read Man Economy and State at Fordham and before I met Rothbard. I didn't meet Rothbard really until I think 1968. Mm -hmm. So I read it before. And uh, I don't know if you know this picture of him. Uh, On the very, on the original edition of Man Economy Estate, which was two volumes hardcover, uh, there is a picture of him as a fairly young man, and I guess in 68, he wasn't really old then either, Uh, but as a young man, uh, looking very scholarly, Mm -hmm. uh, just sort of, um, I don't know, looking like in a thoughtful pose, et cetera. So I look at that picture, I read the book, and I expected very serious person. (laughs) When I met him, uh, he was anything but very, I mean, he was serious when it came to talking about serious things Mm -hmm. but you know he was he was a friendly outgoing uh joyful person Mm -hmm. and not the kind of quiet scholar who would you know the first word out of his mouth would have been uh something like scale of values right right (laughs) (laughs) and so were you because i know later you would collaborate with um gerald o'driscoll so were you like tight buddies in in college or is that yeah, we were pretty good friends in college. Uh, we had our uh, arguments, I remember, mm-hmm. uh, and they were usually about uh, economics or libertarianism. He once uh, expelled me from his dorm room uh-huh. uh, because I said I didn't agree with uh, Mises on Monopoly, uh, and, and he expelled me from the, from the dorm room. <laughs> so that gives you, I mean, a <laughs> flavor of some of the things, but... Uh, no, we were good friends, and and uh, we invited Mises to come to campus mm-hmm. uh, in uh, late 1968. I think it was November 1968 uh, to give a talk um, to the um, economics club, the philosophy club, and uh, maybe the libertarian club. Sort of a joint meeting mm-hmm. of all three to maximize the audience. Uh, and, uh, and Mises came and, uh, I'm, I'm so, uh, disappointed that we don't have a video of that. Although in those days, you know, taking a video would have been a, a big production. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but it was interesting. Uh, Jerry was like the uh, host or chairman or something of the session, and uh, and Mises gave a talk. Um, he was a. Uh, if you, do you want me to talk a little bit oh, about Mises? Talk? Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's what yeah, I was going to yeah. ask you. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. So originally, because we were going to do this with the philosophy club, we thought a good topic would be epistemological problems of economics. And so I, I wrote a letter to Mises and uh, asking him to do that. And anyway, he called me up uh, at home uh, to work out on the details. And he said that he didn't really want to speak on epistemological problems. He wanted to speak on uh, money problems, by which he meant inflation. So I explained to him why we wanted, you know, epistemological problems uh, because the philosophy club and sex. So he said, okay. He says, well, I'll speak on epistemological problems of money. Now, I wasn't sure what that meant, mm -hmm. but it sounded good. So we agreed to that. And uh, so we sent a car. He said he would only come if we sent a car to pick him up and bring him back. And so we sent a car. We, some friends drove down there to... to uh, Seven seven seven. What is it? Riverside Drive, where he lived at. Um, and we picked him up. And uh, I wasn't in the car. The friends, I was waiting on the campus. And uh, when he was coming up, the radio apparently in the car was on, and there was some discussion about a bomb threat at Fordham, because uh, this was during the uh, you know the student rebellions and the war in Vietnam in 1968. It turns out it wasn't a serious threat, but uh, nevertheless, he heard that. Mm -hmm. uh, he was insistent he, he was coming, nevertheless. He said, however, uh, it got him a little bit stirred up. And so he spent the first few minutes of the talk when he arrived uh, talking against anarchy. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, by which he meant, I guess, uh, real, you know, real anarchy. Right, right. Uh, bombs and things. And um, so his big thing was that the uh, this people who would be especially vulnerable under anarchy would be the old. And so it seemed a very personal kind of reaction to what had just happened. So then he went on to speak on the topic, and it was about inflation. He, he made no, no concession about epistemological problems of money, or he talked about what he wanted to. So we realized at that point there was no telling him what to do, so he <laughs> did what he wanted to. And he gave a kind of standard speech, you know, for him, a standard speech against uh, inflation. And, and it was well-received, actually. Mm -hmm. we, that's the feedback we got was that it was well received by all of the groups that were there. And, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't at his prime, but neither was he incoherent or anything. Mm. I mean, he was just, he seemed like an old man uh, who had given the talk before, but nevertheless was a reasonable, you know, it was a reasonable talk. Mm -hmm. He was, I think he might have been 88 at the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I know. I've heard recordings audio recordings of him from i think just a few years before what you're like maybe 66 or something yeah, yeah. 1966 not his age yeah, and yeah. and yeah he was you know it was you know a thick accent and but you could totally understand what he was saying and there was a q a and he was you know re responding yeah. and and what so he certainly still yeah. had it together yeah. yeah he still had it together um so then what's next? Did you go to Chicago first or was the Mount Royalton first? I think you had been to Chicago first. No, I went to, okay. I went to Chicago first. I went to Chicago in September, September, October of 1970. 
luckily, I had drawn a high uh, number in the draft lottery. Uh, th- I remember to this day, 324. And since we're 365 days in the year, I was can, not going to be Do cold. you mind just for the benefit of younger, I mean, me too, I, I know what you're talking about, but can you just explain how that system worked and like what, what that was yeah, like? Yeah, each year, uh, and 1970 was my year because that, that would be the year that I was going to lose my college deferment and there were no longer any uh, graduate school deferments. Um, and so your name had to go, your, your name, your birth date had to go into this, uh, random lottery. And then they would, they said that if you, uh, if your birth date turned up in the first one third, you would definitely be called, uh, at second third, you might be and the third third, you would definitely not be called. And so I got, my number was in the third third, uh, 324. And so I knew that I wouldn't be called and I knew that I could just simply go to graduate school as I had planned. So I lucked out. Now, on, now was that a one-shot that. thing or did you have to face that lottery multiple times? It was a one-shot okay. thing. Okay, okay. And so then I, I went to graduate school. Um, and, oh, by the way, I, uh, you know, some of my classmates, because the lottery took place while I was still at Fordham in the spring of 1970. So I was amazed at the number of my classmates who got uh, low numbers, low number would be, put you, make you vulnerable, uh, who suddenly had, uh, uh back problems mm-hmm. and, uh, and this and that and uh, all of this. And, uh, you know, I think the moral of the story as I look back was that if you came from a fairly, just, just even a middle-class family who was willing to spend a little money to get the right kind of doctor or whatever, uh, you pretty much could get out. Mm-hmm of it um but uh, but any event uh, i didn't have to face any of that just land randomly uh so then i went to chicago and uh i remember landing in chicago feeling a little bit weird about leaving the city in new york but thinking well there was bigger stakes you know i was going to study with milton friedman and this and that and it was kind of an inspiring Mm -hmm. inspiring thought so can you speak a little bit about, so you said when you were younger, your, you know, you first got in, it happened to be Austrian writers and, you know, that's kind of maybe provided the foundation, but then clearly by the time you're going to Chicago for graduate work, you, you must know of this rival school. Like, so at that point, oh yeah, did you still think of yourself as an Austrian or were you eclectic or? You know, I still thought of myself as an Austrian. I, I remember, well, really the only two schools that I, I really would have considered going to uh, was Chicago, were Chicago and UCLA. Mm-hmm. UCLA, because of the time, they had a lot of good people there, Alcian, uh, Leonhofud, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where Jerry went right. the year before. And uh, Murray was quite pleased with that because, uh, you know, Demsets was there. And even though Demsets was in many ways hostile to the Austrians. His own industrial organization ideas were very process oriented, and you know, so there was a lot of good reasons to go to UCLA, and 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 uh, and um, uh, Jerry went there. Um, I decided to go to Chicago, and Murray didn't like that. That was the first offense against him. Uh, and uh, but I said to Murray, so I said to him, "Look, I'm going there, and I had this whole concept." of being a anthropologist. And th- this is what I meant. 
uh, just as an anthropologist tries to get into the mindset of like various kinds of primitive or other kinds of people mm -hmm. of strange cultures, uh, my idea was I would get into the mindset and understand what you know, the Chicago economics was all about without necessarily accepting it, right. uh, just sort of understanding it. And he was worried you were going to come back a cannibal? Yeah, well, yeah, he was worried that I, I, that wouldn't happen, that I, in fact, would accept it. Right. Uh, but I went there and, uh, and I, I, I consciously put the Austrian stuff on the back burner and said, look, I got, I got all this stuff to learn. So I learned it, uh, and I, you know, but with the idea that uh, I hadn't given up on the Austrian stuff mm -hmm. and that I was just specializing in this, my anthropological studies right. at Chicago, and that's what was going to happen. Then as, you know, I passed the exams, et cetera, and it was at what they called the workshop stage, and I was attending, mainly I attended Stigler's Industrial Organization Workshop because at the time, that was combined with law and economics, and that was where, where I was tending uh, to. My fields were industrial organization, history of economic thought, and law and economics for my dissertation. So both the uh, history of thought and the industrial organization were Stigler fields. Mm -hmm. So I was with Stigler for all, you know, a long time. Stigler knew uh, my interest in Austrian economics and all of that, but he never... I never felt persecuted by him mm. for it. Uh, he can't, can't, he joked, uh, I think after I got my degree, he said to someone, maybe it was David Levy or I forget who it was, but not to me. He said, well, we went, we let one Austrian go through and that's going to be the end yeah. of it or something <laughs> mm -hmm. like that. Um, but, uh, he was very, I think what, what Stigler liked in a student was pushback and engagement. Uh, and I gave him that to a certain extent, not purely severely, but in, in a sense, like, you know, like you're, you're the devil or something. Mm. Uh, but so I got along very well with him. In fact, he was responsible for my financial support in the later years of my, uh, of my stay at Chicago through the, uh, Walgreen foundation. Uh, Can I, sorry, so I, I missed, did you say he was also the history of economic thought guy? Yeah. Well, I guess that doesn't surprise me that in my, my experience, the people who teach history of economic thought, like for one thing, they appreciate the Austrian school historically for its role, but also the kind of person that cares about stuff that nobody reads anymore is interested in like, you know, minority viewpoints as it were. And so they wouldn't be hostile to somebody who embraces something that's considered idiosyncratic. Yeah. But, and Stigler, Stigler actually liked Menger, mm -hmm. but he didn't like Brumbaver. Uh, and I think the reason he liked Menger is because Menger showed a, a real, uh, concern with knowledge and perfection. Uh, and he didn't like Bombavrk because Bombavrk was in his mind screwed up about mathematics and got himself into a lot of problems because he wouldn't engage in mathematical thinking or something. Uh, but, but it didn't, that really didn't matter. Uh, I mean, uh, mostly what I talked about with Stigler were various figures in the history of thought, Mill, Knight. I remember him talking about Knight, which interesting in retrospect. I came to him and I said, look, I'm, I'm you know, studying for the history of thought, qualifying exam, and I, I'm trying to figure out Knight's capital theory. Mm. And I said, I, I can't understand it. I don't know what he's talking about. And Stigler 
started out by giving me some general perspective on Knight's Capital Theory that then added, nobody really understands Knight's Capital Theory. And, and secondly, don't worry about it because the unofficially here, the history of economic thought ends in 1915. So anything after 1915, don't worry about. And, mm. and the capital theory and Frank Knight in general was after mm. 1915. So I didn't, you know, I was relieved because to this day, I don't really understand Knight's capital theory. I like to meet somebody. Was there some reason that they picked 1950? Was that a crisp, like, did that include something, but exclude something else? Do you know why they picked 1915? I'm just like, to me, that, that year doesn't have any special significance. No, it doesn't have any special significance to me too. Uh, I, I really don't know why he said that. Uh, maybe that's, he was reflecting on, uh, the questions he was going to ask mm -hmm. or something. I have no idea. Okay. Um, so did you actually take any classes from Milton Friedman? Yeah. Um, I took, uh, monetary theory and I also sat in on, uh, his version of price theory. Um, and, uh, I would say this about his teaching. Uh, price theory, you're going to get people who think that his version of price theory was terrific. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't like it. And I'll tell you why I didn't like it. And it's very much a student perspective. I didn't like it because he did not teach the material. Uh, namely, uh, you know, I don't know, Slutsky, uh, what all that stuff. What he did was he had come in and he would presuppose that you would read the material and that somehow you more or less understood it. And then he would talk about applied issues. Uh, mm -hmm. So he would come in with the Wall Street Journal or something. And he would talk about the, uh, you know, the oil cartel, because that was a big thing in the 70s mm -hmm. or something like that. Or he would come in to some article on advertising and, uh, or an article on whether the automobile industry was a, mono was a oligopoly or not. And so it was very applied, and he would go back and forth with the students. I think that was fine from the, if you really got everything else. But from the perspective of learning the material from which you were going to be tested, uh, it wasn't good mm -hmm. in my view. So that's why I didn't like it. Now, if you were there and you were not worried about anything like that and just sort of, uh, you know, enjoying the applications, it, it would be very good. Mm -hmm. Monetary theory, uh, in retrospect was extraordinarily narrow. Uh, it was monetarism in his sense, Irving Fisher and a, a, a bit of Pagu. Uh, and, uh, that was about it. Uh, a little bit of Excel maybe, but not much. So it was extremely narrow. You didn't get a sense of the varieties of monetary theory. Um, and so, you know, I was a little disappointed with that. Although as a presentation of monetarism as it existed at the time, it was very good. Right. Okay. But it just was mm -hmm. a little bit narrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was my what you just said about the style that that was my experience the first year at NYU. I remember the macro class, the, the guy just, I won't say any names. He just got up and just was giving us problem sets like, okay, here's this problem. And what's the, you know, what's the planner's solution or whatever. And, yeah. and I was like, well, what's, what's the theory? What are we, what's the framework? Like we didn't even have a book. 
I went and asked the no. TA, you know, are there any books on this? And he said, no, which was, you know, at the time was crazy. <laughs> so finally, at some point I did realize there are textbooks on this stuff and I went and got those. And so I had, but it was like, we almost had to like use induction, like to see, you know, here's the, the questions and here were the answers that we found out in the TA sessions. And then just look at those and realize, oh, this is the common element. This is how you supposed to solve these things. It was like uncovering hieroglyphic. And maybe that's a, maybe if you, do you think Milton Friedman, if you had, express that to him would say, right, this isn't undergrad anymore. We're not here to spoon feed you. We're assuming you can go learn the material. Now I'm showing you how to apply it to make you a good economist. Yeah, I think he would have said something yeah, like okay. that. But I, I sat in on other versions. Mm -hmm. uh, I sat in on Barry Becker's. I think Becker's was great. Mm -hmm. I mean, Becker was a great teacher. Uh, he laid everything out logically. He, uh, you know, he asked uh, questions that would elicit some some feedback and a discussion. Uh, his mathematics was always reasonable. It didn't go into all sorts of fancy stuff. Uh, so there always was an intuitive aspect to it. Uh, no, he was he was a he was a very good price theory professor. Mm. Um, so I, I I learned a lot from from Becker, um, uh, and uh, that was my ideal of what you know the price theory. Chicago Price Theory course would have been mine. Mm -hmm. it was. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion for me to once again remind you that if you like what you hear, you like the guests that I bring on and the perspective I offer in the solo episodes, by all means, consider making a contribution. The more such contributions I get, the more episodes I can do per month just as a justification for using my scarce labor hours on this outlet that I love, but yet does not fully pay the bills. And so I can only do it part-time thus far. For details on how you can do that and all the special bonuses, depending on your level of contribution, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Let me just mention, if you've made a qualifying contribution and you're supposed to get let into the Facebook secret group, shh, it's a secret, and it's been more than two weeks since you've made the contribution and I haven't gotten back to you, that means I somehow missed the note in my inbox. And so don't be shy. Please get in touch and just let me know. Uh, make sure that I get everybody in there who's supposed to be in there. Last thing I'll mention is whether you contribute or not, another way you can certainly help is subscribe to me on YouTube. And when you come across an episode that you realize some of your friends might be interested in or, you know, a coworker, and I'm going to be trying to make more episodes that are catering to someone who's not a true believer, as it were, then sharing the episodes with people like that is another great way for me to get the podcast out in front of more people. Thanks, everybody, for your support, and let's get back to the episode. Now, something I noticed, um, like, the, like the, the, it's associated with, like, the UCLA tradition, but just that, what am I trying to say? There's something about people who have come out of that framework where it does seem to me like they have certain skills, like, when they analyze something in terms, and I, I can't even think of a good example, unfortunately, but it, it does seem like the, the that tradition in price theory, um, there's types of ways of grappling with certain real world things that I, I, I didn't learn, yeah. you know, in my education. And so I sort of learned like from reading Steve Landsberg or somebody, you know what I mean? Like, like applying yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, is. Yeah. So I guess there is that right. element as well. I mean, were you, are you, are you aware of that, that there is? Yes. Yes. It was a very, uh, it, it, even though, well, okay. Becker's course was not particularly applied, mm -hmm. uh, 
but but there were applications. But it, but the thing is, it was theory with the aim of being applied. So you know the Marshallian idea of uh, concrete truth uh, that economics is the is it's kind of a toolbox for the discovery of concrete truth uh, was a theme. We're only doing all of this so that you can understand concrete issues better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is no particular value to it apart from that. So that that makes the whole thing, you know, whole thing is different at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so for example, uh, we didn't spend much of any time on all these rationality axioms that are a part of microeconomics. Uh, maybe it was mentioned and it was assumed, okay, we're going to assume that these things hold, but, uh, you know, it's okay, let's, let's move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also you, you basically started with the demand curve rather than worrying about a lot of things about utility and, uh, and all of that. So, uh, you know, the formalisms of, of, uh, microeconomics, were considered less important than the uh, the whether the structure was able to explain a real world phenomena, and so you you pursued it that way as a as a as a background to understanding real world phenomena, mm-hmm. and that that especially came uh, became obvious in two ways: one, on the qualifying exams, uh, the Mike uh, the price theory qualifying exam which had lots of uh, applied questions. By applied, I don't mean necessarily real-world applications, but, you know, to say, well, suppose, uh, you know, the, the, uh, a firm uh, uh, is experiencing excess demand for its product uh, but decides not to raise its price. So what could be an explanation? You know, something like that, right? So you would come up with something. Um, so in that way, very applied. Hardly any mathematics in in my time there, on the uh, on the price theory exam. If you failed, you failed because you lacked the intuition. If you passed, you passed because you had it. Whether you had particular mathematical skills might have made the difference between a pass and a high pass or something like that. But that wasn't going to determine your fate. Mm-hmm. Later, that was considered to be a problem, and that that changed. The other way it manifested itself is in the industrial organization uh, exam, the qualifying preliminary exam, which wasn't required, but if you took it as a field, uh, very applied. I remember saying to somebody once that the way I studied for the industrial organization and to some extent the micro qualifying exam was to to go into uh, the grocery store and notice different pricing things and practices and try to understand why they were what they were. You know, like a Landsberg thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was doing that on my own. And it was, in a way, I would maybe exaggerate a little bit, but it was a preparation. and It was something that was effective because you got to see the subtle ways in which you know, price theoretic concepts manifest themselves in the real world mm-hmm. and not worry about whether they had a theorem. Right, right. You know, that, that wasn't the issue. Um, I just double-checked there to see, I think Eugene Fama's uh, paper on the random walk hypothesis came out in 65. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, when you were at Chicago, was that like what we now think of as like the Chicago school's approach to efficient markets? 
Was that already yeah. a thing there, or was that still? Yeah, yeah. But that was prior to ra- my my there being there was prior to rational expectations, which is a development of uh, the efficient markets. But efficient markets was the thing. Uh, I didn't really take a course on that. Fama was teaching in the business school, and that was considered. Uh, part of financial economics mm-hmm. and, you know, so we knew about it, the economic students knew about it, but it wasn't something that we studied in great detail. Okay, let me, but it was, yes. Let me see if I understood what you just said there. Is, are you saying that in terms of the development of the thought, you, th- that was kind of its own little box in terms of like studying financial markets or economic, financial, but then with Robert Lucas doing his critique of like hydraulic Keynesianism and then given the, the uh, efficient... Um, Rational expectations Rational approach is the criterion. Well, that was like in what the seventies. Yeah, and that was so that's it, what brought it, that mindset into like economics proper, right. at least in the Chicago it, tradition. It, 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 yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, Lucas arrived uh, while I was there, but I had finished macro, and so I was spared all that. Okay. All right. What was it? Did you know go, when you went to Chicago that you wanted to go into law and economics, or did you realize that when you were there? When I was there. Okay. And in fact, in fact, when I went there, I thought I was going to specialize in monetary theory. Uh, well, obviously, you know, Friedman mm-hmm. and welfare economics, and neither one of those is what I always tell students uh, starting graduate school. You never know what you're going to wind up specializing in. Right. Okay. Um. So then. I guess another major event would be, well, when you left Chicago, then did you go to teach right away? Well, I I I, I was offered a postdoctoral fellowship mm-hmm. uh, by Israel Kersner and then ultimately the economics department at NYU uh, when I was about to leave Chicago, and so I was on the job market that year, and so that was a uh, a position that was offered to me. I was. Uh, I was thinking about going to um, VPI mm-hmm. because at that time, uh, Buchanan and, and Tullock and all those people were there. Thank goodness I didn't go because they wound up leaving in short right, order. Right. And uh, so, um, uh, but I, you know, so I, I came to New York uh, partly or because it was, you know, it's a chance to go back to New York. Also, I like the idea of becoming part of an Austrian program. And so I accepted the uh, position. Um, and there was some teaching involved. Uh, well, actually, it was voluntary in the sense that uh, I could, if I want, teach one course a semester. I decided I would, part of because I was interested in teaching mm-hmm. and also because I thought, well, this is a postdoc. It's not a guarantee of a tenure track. Right. So I should get some teaching experience. Okay. Now, I should know these dates off the top of my head, but I don't. When you went there, was Mises retired at that point, or was he still? Yeah, he was retired. Well, he had he had died. Well, he so he certainly I, I, he wasn't showing up for class. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I I arrived there in the fall of 1976. Oh, okay. At, at NYU. What, what years were you at Chicago? I was at Chicago from seventy to uh, fall of seventy to the uh, the end of the summer of seventy six. That's right. You you said that for some reason. I was thinking you were a bit earlier. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so can you speak a little bit, was Kersner, so I knew you said you'd read Man, Economy, and State. Can you give a sense, like, was, was Kersner someone too? Like, I guess he had, what, the economic point of view was one of yeah. the early, like, was that something that you had 
Like, did you know oh, yeah, Israel yeah. Kersner? And then, like, when yeah. you met him, did you realize, yeah. oh, this is one of the heavy hitters in Austrian economics? Right. Yeah. We we invited uh, uh, Kersner in the senior mm-hmm. year of uh, of Fordham, uh, Jerry and I, to come to the uh, to to give a talk, and he gave a talk on. Um, Welfare economics, actually, and Pareto optimality and uh, such matters uh, at Fordham. Uh, one of the few times that Kersner was ever late for anything. Uh, apparently, there was some tie-up in the subway. And so he, he arrived about 20 minutes late mm-hmm. uh, for, the, for the talk, which, you know, for Kersner is an amazing thing that he should. I've never let him forget that that was the time <laughs> that he was late. He came into the room huffing and puffing because he had run from the, so the, the subway to the, mm-hmm. <laughs> to the, the room. Uh, but, but it turns out it was a very good talk. And I, had, uh, I also sat in on a class that uh, a, a single session of a class that Kersner gave at NYU on, uh, in a course called Advanced Price Theory. So I knew him and I knew his work. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, so, yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess this would be a logical point that can you speak about the, the Mount, um, the Royalton Conference? Yeah. Uh, so I was still a, a student at, at Chicago, because that was in 19. Uh, 74, I believe, uh, the conference and, um, uh, at the time, so I was contacted, you know, there, there were only, I mean, probably everybody who was interested in Austrian economics or just about everybody who was interested in Austrian economics wound up going to, uh, uh, Mount Royalton and it was in the middle of no place. Uh, probably still is no place, although it's l- probably Actually, less it of a no South, place. Did I just no make place. up Mount Royalton or is it South, South Royalton? Royalton. Uh, no, sure, sure, y- yeah, Royalton. that's my South fault because I was, I was mixing yeah, yeah, Mount, yeah. Mount Pelerin. <laughs> and, yeah. Mount Pelerin, yeah, yeah, I know. I and it's funny because um, when you just said that, I was like, okay, no, I didn't get it wrong. And No, you're copying me. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's at South Royalton. So, so I, yeah, fine. I think IHS uh, was running it uh, in conjunction uh, with maybe uh, Dolan, Edwin Dolan from Dartmouth, uh, who was very sympathetic. Uh, I don't know if he was an Austrian. In any event, uh, so I went. I do remember it was a lot of trouble to get there. Um, I took a plane. Uh, the plane had to return to O'Hare Airport because there was some problem with the hydraulic system. So we went back to O'Hare. So then I got nervous about taking another plane. But uh, I decided, well, okay, uh, I'll take a plane to New York City because that'll be safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that would be safe. So I took it to New York City and then I took a train up to, more or less up to South Royalton, uh, and it was pouring rain. Anyway, we got there, and uh, all sorts of interesting people then and now. Richard Ebeline had spent uh, three days on a bus from Santa Monica mm-hmm. to get there, and Ludwig Blockman was there, yeah. Rothbard, Kirsten. Did you know... Everybody that was there, basically. I mean, obviously, you knew the speakers, but even the attendees. Like, was it well known? Okay, who who's an Austrian in the U.S. right now? Or no, no, I I didn't know all of the people. I knew some of the people. Mm-hmm. I hadn't met Lachman before, mm-hmm. uh, so that was uh, interesting. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he was a different kind of Austrian, as we all know. Uh, he always identified as an Austrian and although some people wanted to say he was something else, but, uh, but you know, he was emphasizing different things and it was a kind of mind blowing in some way, but I, I knew some of the people, uh, maybe some only 
very uh, casually. I had met some people at libertarian events when I was in college and stuff like that. But so it was a mix of people I knew and people I didn't know. Okay. Um, so then when you're at NYU, was the Austrian colloquium already going or did you create that? How did that work? Well, the, the year before I arrived, 75, was the first year that Lachman was there. Mm -hmm. So what happened then was that Lachman would meet in his office with Don Lavoie and some other people who were graduate students uh, at uh, NYU at the time. Uh, I don't know if Kersner participated in these uh, meetings with Lachman in his office. My guess is he probably did not and that people spoke to uh, Kersner separately. But uh, so what happened then were these informal meetings in the in offices. Then when I arrived, I think Kersner thought, well, we now have enough people it's also some additional graduate students to have a, uh, a colloquium. Mm -hmm. And so 76, uh, fall of 76, it started. And it started a little bit different than, differently than it wound up today uh, in that we discussed sometimes articles that were appearing in the journals. And then sometimes we would discuss a paper produced by some member of the colloquium. But most of the discussion, I think, was about journal articles and uh, things of that sort that were produced elsewhere. And then from an Austrian perspective, we would have a discussion. And then as we kept meeting... Uh, but can I, I ask you, Mark, but so it wasn't that the author would come in as the guest. It was just you no, internally no. would... okay. Yes, the first year was like that. Then we gradually evolved into inviting some people to come in and present, not every week, but once in a while. And then it grew more and more. Uh, and then it became a, uh, a, you know, every, then it became papers written by either a guest or somebody in the colloquium, sort of the, the style it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, that probably began in 78 when Jerry arrived. And so then we had Jerry, me, uh, we had uh, Israel, we had Lachman, you know, and so it was now feasible to do it that way. Okay. So I've heard, you know, obviously I experienced firsthand the, the style of the Austrian colloquium. It's very polite. You know, the speaker comes and gets to talk a lot. And then, then there's a Q and a session. Whereas I, I know, for example, Chicago, that's not at all how it would how yeah, it was conducted. Yeah. So do, do, did you have any influence in terms of the style and can you compare those two different approaches? I didn't, I don't think I had influence with regard to the style. I think Kersner pretty much established the style. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was very uh, amenable to it. I, I saw virtue to the Chicago style, but on the other hand, I, I, I thought that this style was perfectly reasonable too and that you know, you could make serious criticisms without making the person feel like an idiot. Mm -hmm. And so I was happy with the, with the, the change, change for me from the Chicago style. Uh, although I, I, if there were recordings, I would just venture a guess that my tone in the early days might've been more aggressive than it evolved into okay. uh, later on, but that would be personal evolution. So the, I guess it's appropriate at this point to ask, so you've got the the book that you did with 
O'Driscoll, Economics of Time and Ignorance. Yeah. Can you talk about, you know, how, how did that project get started? So when Jerry arrived in 78, we, uh, you know, we then would talk almost every day and that kind of thing. And so at one point, uh, I don't know, maybe it was in 79 or so, we said, you know, we're, we're going to some of these Austrian conferences that are being held, and there are people there uh, who seem interested in Austrian economics, but in a sense, they don't really know what Austrian economics is. Uh, they really have deficient backgrounds. I mean, some people, you know, uh, think that it's not that different from Chicago economics. And, uh, and so uh, what we have to do is maybe we need to write a paper just sort of laying it out because Jerry and I were, were in a position, you know, with our familiarity over not many years of Austrian economics to kind of set down what were some of the basic ideas and basic principles. So we decided to write a paper called What is Austrian Economics? And that paper eventually was sent in to the Journal of Economic Literature. Uh, we had some reason to believe that they would be interested in such a paper. Uh, because there was the stirrings of the Austrian revival, uh, conferences were being held, people were hearing about it. So it seemed reasonable, and we thought it would meet with some, I forget who the editor was of the Journal of Economic Literature in 1980. It might have been Mark Perlman. But, okay, so it, it was sent in. Unfortunately, it was rejected, and it was rejected in part because the referee said, or one of the referees said, there was no empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we, we were pretty annoyed with that because what we were setting out to do was, is, is setting out what the conceptual scheme was, what the, the theory, theoretical framework was. Wouldn't the empirical evidence than, be to cite Austrian writers and say this is our evidence that this is what it is? Well, yeah, the evidence <laughs> of what Austrian writers thought. Uh, so uh, we were very disappointed with that. Then in, in 1980 which may have been the year it was rejected, uh, but I'm not sure. We got a session at the American Economic Association, uh, which was being held, uh, the meetings were being held in Denver. And so Jerry took the paper out to Denver. I didn't go that year uh, and presented it uh, at, the, uh, at a session of the American Economic Association. And in the audience uh, were a number of people of significance, uh, including a editor at Basel Blackwell called uh, by the name of uh, Rene Olivieri. I don't know if he's still around, but Olivieri was impressed with the talk and wrote us a letter uh, afterwards asking if we'd be interested in transforming the paper into a book. Mm -hmm. And so we jumped at the opportunity because as a paper, it wasn't, it didn't seem to go where we wanted to go. And so then we, uh, we thought it would be easy to write a book on the subject, given the paper, but it took longer than we thought. And then we began to write chapters and discuss them with each other. We had some initial disagreements and we, we, we ironed them out. And so then we presented the book to the publisher. So it eventually came out in 1985, which is uh, quite a while after the What is Austrian Economics paper was, uh, was written. Uh, and so that's how the book uh, got written it and and even uh, okay so the original purpose was just tell people what Austrian economics is as of the date of the paper mm -hmm. okay 
then it got transformed, and I think uh, maybe I had more to do with this than Jerry, but he was amenable to uh, examining more um, deeply the foundations of Austrian economics, and 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 by so doing, maybe expanding its scope and reach, but always going back to the the accepted foundations of Austrian economics. Uh, so the book became uh, something a little bit more, maybe a lot more than just a statement of what Austrian economics is, mm-hmm. but a, 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 a re, you know, re-examination, uh, which is the title of the third version or third edition of the book. Incidentally, the third edition of the book, or Austri- called Austrian Economics Reexamined, colon, the economics of time and ignorance, has the original, what is Austrian economics paper reproduced oh, okay. uh, in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting. I looked it over a few years ago before you know we republished it. And I said, you know, at a certain level, this is still valid. I mean, because if you're talking about foundations, uh, it's still true. It's, you know, subjectivism. Uh, all those things are still true about what Austrian economics is. Uh, and, um, and so still in that sense, it's an, it's, a, I think a useful introductory uh, paper for, for some people. Now that phrase, is that taken from the general theory when Keynes says to like beating back the, the, the dark forces of time and ignorance? Yeah. Yeah. The economics of, uh, yeah, the, the dark forces of time and ignorance that develop our future. Uh, I did. Okay. I think I was more responsible for the title than Jerry. And the reason I thought the title would be useful is because we were both Jerry and I were talking about you know about the possibility of making alliances maybe alliances is the wrong word with different parts of economics uh, we saw that you know on, on some policy issues we had things in common with the with the uh, Chicago school mm-hmm. but we thought that on subjectivism issues we might have more in common with uh, post Keynesians on institutional issues we might have more in common with institutional economic econom, economists. So the idea was to stress the ways in which we might find common ground. And so the book, uh, in a way, maybe startling to some people, evoked a kind of common ground with post-Keynesians, although we were careful in the introduction to, to clarify that one of the f- problems with Keynes was that he didn't recognize that the dark forces of time and ignorance enveloped the f- <laughs> envelop a policy, right. and that there are knowledge problems with regard to policy as well. But in any event, and then we were rebuffed by the post-Keynesians. It was kind of bitter. Davidson, Paul Davidson, wrote a nasty thing for critical inquiry about about the book and condemned us, basically. So, you know, pretty soon that, that hope went away, but the title remained, and I don't think it's a it's a it's a good title because there are there are certain passages of Keynes uh, and certain aspects of Keynes's thought which are very congruent with Austrian economics. I remember mm-hmm. uh, he he wrote a letter to Jan Tinbergen uh, about econometrics, and Keynes was very suspicious of econometrics. And he said to Tinbergen, you know, the difference between you and and me is that you're anxious to get the job done with you know econometrics and mathematics and he says and i'm more interested in thinking about whether the job is worth getting done mm-hmm. and that and that 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 kind of mindset i think 
a lot of Austrians have, you know, like, okay, stop before you get into all this technicalities. Let's back up and see whether this is something worth doing. Yeah. I found the same thing basically when I was working on the, my dissertation. Um, for f- folks who don't know, so Mario was the chair of my dissertation. I went to NYU on yeah. the Austrian fellowship. Well, um, I, I, I guess I will have said that in the intro, Mario, so they'll know that backstory um, to this episode. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I read the general theory because I thought, well, when else am I going to read it? Because when I'm in grad school, I might as well read this thing. And I was expecting yeah. it to be really difficult because that's what you hear. Like, oh, it's incomprehensible. And, and I I didn't agree with it, but I knew what he was talking about. And so, and so you're right. Yeah. Some of the passages were pretty, you know, like, whoa, that's that's a deep thought, man, kind of stuff. And then, yeah. and I guess yeah. that's why Shackle later liked it and, you know, Lockman, you know, yeah. taking certain yeah. aspects from that. Uh, I think the problem with Keynes mm-hmm. was that when he got to policy, he didn't take some of his strictures on subjectivism and the limits of economics seriously enough. I think he was very, uh, he, he was, a, he was both a, a theorist in some respects, but he was very practical in other respects. And his theory, you know, which may be subtle and have a lot of issues to a certain extent, was an obstacle to his policy, uh, and he wanted to be in the midst of policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I heard a, uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, there's a, there's like a, I don't know, maybe it's five minutes or less, uh, YouTube thing with Keynes giving a talk on BBC, and it's a video. And he comes, and he sits down there, and both because of his physical appearance, he he also looks tall in the video, even though he's sitting down. And the authoritative tone of his of his of his voice mm-hmm. shows you how convincing the man was. Mm-hmm. So, in some sense, you know, he had a rhetorical gift, which probably <laughs> exceeded his theoretical uh, talent. Right. Uh, so, anyway. Yeah, I, rem- I don't remember. Was it might have been Hayek? I can't. Somebody was sort of trying to put a box around Keynes to show. He's not that great of it. And saying something like, I mean, he's only read English economics or something. I was thinking, oh, me too. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's see. So I, I, I don't want to keep you too long. So I do want to jump ahead to your more current work, what you've been doing. And so I thought maybe there's three, three of your recent papers that I would just, you know, prompt you to, to speak a bit as what you're doing on these. So one of them is called, uh, can, a con- can a contractarian be a paternalist? So what's going on in that paper? All right. So there was this uh, conference uh, held at um, Eastern Tennessee. Is that the name? Where where Buchanan went to uh, to grad to to undergraduate school. I guess it was called something different when 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 uh, Buchanan went to graduate school there. But anyway, Middle Tennessee State University. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a conference in honor of his hundredth uh, birthday. And so since I had been working on paternalism for, for a long time with the uh, the book Escaping Paternalism, you know, I was looking for a topic that kind of combined Buchanan with paternalism. And, uh, and what intrigued me was the fact that Buchanan seemed very much opposed to paternalism. You know, on the other hand, he was in favor or saw a place for what he called self-constitutions, uh, self uh, restraining rules that people might make for themselves, uh, but also self-constraining rules uh, in, at the constitutional level for society as a whole. 
So uh, what I what the paper is about is whether there is anything in uh, Buchanan's behind the veil analysis which precludes people uh, agreeing at the constitutional level to a certain degree of paternalism, because very much you know he always goes back to the constitutional level and the rules that that people could assign for society at that level. And so for him, freedom is really defined relative to the rules that would be established at this constitutional level. So is it possible for a, uh, uh, for in Buchanan's system, for people at the constitutional level to agree to a certain form of paternalism? Anyway, the, the paper comes to the conclusion that there is some possibility that that would be acceptable in his system even though he personally was opposed to paternalism, but that it is so plagued by practical problems, which he says is a valid consideration at the constitutional level, that it's unlikely that you could be a paternalist and a Buchanan constitutional theorist at the same time. So there's some small opening, but it doesn't overcome all the practical problems that uh, Buchanan himself says, are legitimate considerations at the constitutional level. And by paternalism in this context, you, you mean things like forcing you to contribute to your retirement plan, stuff like that? Yeah, or, or maybe a, a rule that says, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, rules that say you have the right to reconsider uh, all purchases within five days in case you make a mm -hmm. rash decision or something of that sort. Yeah. Okay, okay. All right. So an another one that intrigued me of the you sent the list of your recent ones is Nightian uncertainty, true and false. Yeah. So what's going on in that paper? Okay, that is also for a, a special event, the hundredth uh, anniversary of uh, Knight's risk, uncertainty, and profit. Okay, I guess the basic idea of the paper is that we have generally assumed most of us that Knight's central contribution in the third part, which is about uncertainty and risk is that distinction between risk and uncertainty and that uh, uncertainty involves well some people say it's just a subjective probability but i think we show that that's wrong but a lot of people say well you know what that is is about the fact that you can't list the full uh, possibilities beforehand uh, and so therefore probability analysis at least in its usual form whether it be subjective or objective uh, isn't really appropriate under conditions of you know un true uncertainty or radical uncertainty. We don't disagree with that, but we say that it's even more. Hey, Mario, just, just for the benefit of the list, whereas risk is very quantifiable. Yes. That you know you're yeah, a shipping company, you know some crates are going to burst, but you have an idea of the probabilities. Right. Blah blah blah. Right. Okay. Life insurance, mm -hmm. health insurance, those kinds of risk, which have uh, a constant uh, uh, relative uh, frequency, et cetera. So that's true. That distinction between risk and uncertainty, a true uncertainty is true. We don't say that, I mean, that's in Knight and there's nothing wrong with that. But Knight goes a step further and he actually says that the fundamental lesson of his review of this probability stuff is that the way scientists make decisions and the way they model uh, the world is vastly different from the way 
individuals, especially entrepreneurs, make decisions. So what he's arguing here, and what, uh, I should say, what he means by science here is a very narrow view of science, but still one applicable to economics. That is a mechanistic, mathematical, closed system way of thinking. So what he's saying is that, in effect, don't try to model the decision-making of individuals under uncertainty and, 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 and therefore entrepreneurs in the same way that you would model things more susceptible to mathematical uh, analysis. And so, in effect, what he is, is endorsing is a role for intuition. Now, what does he mean by intuition? And we, we, we go through this and show what he means, but also show what, in effect, what developments have taken place. And we place a lot of emphasis on the tacit knowledge uh, literature and how entrepreneurs uh, actually make decisions uh, on the basis of tacit knowledge, knowledge which is not easily modeled in a, uh, a, a, a coherent scientific way. And so we try to bring Knight uh, to the tacit knowledge issue and also to the idea that his, his objection uh, or his his point in risk, uncertainty, and profit is the limits of this scientific, in the narrow sense of the word, scientific way of thinking. And also, there's a lot in the article about how he gets many of these ideas from William James, mm -hmm. uh, the psychologist, philosopher William James. He was a, if you go through, and we go through the the, the book, showing lots of uh, influence of William James, even to the point where some of the examples being given are taken straight from James. And uh, I'm going to explore that more, mm. what James has to offer Austrian economists, actually. But so there is that element of, of the dependence of, of Knight on, on William James. And James um, uh, had strong ideas about intuitive thinking as, as well. That is interesting. Um, well, I guess it'll probably get into your next section one too. But this, I noticed that yes, the you know neoclassical mainstream they would acknowledge the limits of like old school, just assuming rationality. But then they would just sort of replace it with an axiomatic treatment of subjective uncertainty, like with the work of Savage and people like that. And so, yeah, so that's yeah. is that partly what you're recoiling the, against? Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Knight Knight is saying, you know, th this book should be interpreted as mm. also showing that uh, people do not make decisions in, or in, in real life under uncertainty in the way that scientists think decisions are made or the way scientists themselves make decisions. And I remember Kersner said something, because I took him for the history of economic thought when I was at NYU, and he, it may have been in that class or maybe something he just said in a comment in the colloquium, but he, he was getting at that too, where in other words, like like the Austrians had their critique of the way the neoclassicals did something, and then the neoclassicals to respond to that sort of just like pushed it back one level. Like, okay, yeah, we don't optimize here, we optimize back here or something. And, and his point was, at some point, you have to get rid of that framework and realize that, the, you know, that's that's yeah. not how it's yeah. going yeah. on. You're still uh -huh. just doing an equilibrium right. rational approach. Right. You've just right. now there's right. a random variable or something. Right, right. So you're not and really that's very much the, the, mm. the, the message from Knight. Okay, okay. 
So then the last one, well, go ahead. Okay, well, I should say, although Knight can be confusing in this respect, because he talks about the limits of science, mm -hmm. but he has a very narrow view of what science is. It's a kind of a late, perhaps a, 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 a late 19th century view that doesn't fully take into account the developments in science in the early 20th century. But don't forget, the book is written in 21, but also in his life, he didn't, he had he always had this narrow view of science as a very mechanistic, deterministic system. Uh, the, but the reason that that's still important is because there's much in economics that's still like that. Mm -hmm. It's still like 19th century science. So, you know, it's still relevant. I don't know if this is what you get, but I I did notice that like when Paul Samuelson in the 20th century tried to clearly steer economics to look like physics, it wasn't at that point cutting edge physics. It was like Newtonian mechanics. Yeah. You know, that that's the kind of the, the way he was steering it. So it was interesting yeah. that it wasn't even on its own terms. Okay. And then the last one I wanted you to talk about while I've got you here is the uh, old Chicago against static welfare economics. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. That was the beginning of my uh, my Frank Knight phase, but it comes from Buchanan, really. And this is the old idea that uh, Bill Buchanan, getting from Knight, say that preferences are not static, uh, that there's an illusion of static preferences because what we do is we kind of look at a decision already having been made, and then we say, well, how can we rationalize it in terms of uh, preferences, constraints, et cetera? So the decision's already there. It's already made. And so it looks as if, well, you know, the preferences are there. They're static. They're already made. Uh, and that's the end of it. It's a whole static analysis. But Knight's point and Buchanan's point was that actually preferences are not static. Uh, there's two aspects of this. You know, in, in decisions in the making are different from decisions already made. So in the making, people are mulling over what they want. Uh, and so there is a non-static quality to the actual process of decision making. But even more importantly, for both Buchanan and, and for Knight, uh, they say that the primary goal in a kind of dynamic setting that people have it's not simply or not mainly the satisfaction of current preferences, but the uh, refinement of their preferences, the, the, the want, the, they want better preferences, uh, better defined in whatever way they, they, they look at it, better maybe more cultured or better maybe more effective or, or however. They want better preferences. And so there is a kind of uh, aspirational aspect uh, to this. Um, and so really what we ought to be looking at is not, now this is us, mm -hmm. and to a certain extent Buchanan, is not a system which maximizes the, uh, the satisfaction of current preferences, but a system which gives scope for the dynamic development of new preferences uh, so that we ought to be thinking about a, a social system in which people are free to explore, to make mistakes, to develop uh, ideas by exchange of information, uh, a, a system in which is, is heavy on information flow, 
uh, all of these sort of dynamic processes which help people improve their decisions and improve their preferences are what should be the focus of a, of a social system. And so it's the idea that static welfare economics, with all of its merits, only captures a part of what is desirable about a, any particular social system. And one of the problems with paternalism is that it seeks to insulate people from mistakes, uh, and mistakes are part of the process of exploration. And so mistakes are an important part of the dynamic improvement uh, of preference uh, formation and preference satisfaction, uh, which is the kind of Knightian, Buchanan-type uh, framework. So that's sort of the theme. So how does this relate to... So there's the famous Stigler-Beckler paper, the Degustibus, you know, there's no accounting, yeah, and where they build in like, like yeah. how there could be an addiction or you want to have a taste for classical music, but you kind of have to force yourself in the beginning, but you know, I want to be a guy who likes classical music 10 years from now. It, is, is this the same kind of stuff and they just make it more like an optimizing agent or is it a different, are they missing the mark with that? Well, you know, Malta Dold and I, who, co-authors on this paper, spent a lot of time thinking about the relationship between uh, that perspective and, and, and the Knight, Buchanan, our own perspective. Um, and it, it's complicated. Um, and, and the reason I say it's complicated is because there is no, first of all, there is no normative aspect to the, uh, the Becker-Stigler approach. Right, so they're not saying that uh, chain or exploration of preferences is, is somehow a good thing. They're just saying that, in fact, uh, when we think we see a change in preferences, in other words, uh, I go from uh, from pop music to classical music, looks like a change in preferences. Really, that's not a change in preferences. Because at some deeper level, I have a preference for music appreciation, and that form it takes uh, depends upon what what knowledge I might acquire, what mm -hmm. relative prices are, uh, you know, and what my random experiences might be. So, first of all, there's no normative uh, aspect. Secondly, we don't disagree with that, with those statements that that could could affect, um, but. What I think uh, the difference is, is that they want to look at it continually as a sort of uh, a maximizing uh, problem and not as an exploratory problem. And we're looking at it as a problem of exploration prior to any maximization. Mm -hmm. So people are exploring different options. People are exploring different ways of satisfying their musical preference, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of it is actually socially conditioned. Uh, you know, if you grow up in a family uh, in which uh, classical music is a big thing, even though you may start out with pop music, you're going to be affected by that. Right, right. Okay. Um, it's funny, as you were saying that, like I was realizing, it depends the level of specificity because you... Right. In terms of like my preferences appear apparently changing over time, because even within it, I could say like, "Oh, you bought the first you know Beatles album that came out, but then next year you didn't keep buying that same album. You switched to their new album. So did your preferences change? And clearly, that would be goofy. Like no right. one would say that. It depends on the yeah. level of abstraction. Yeah. If you if you define your underlying preferences abstractly enough, 
Well, they they never will change, right? Right. So it's it this a bit of a game going on there. One thing uh, I did want to ask you. So something I took out of the economics of time and ignorance that I put into my dissertation was the notion of of pattern coordination. Yeah, and because and, that was sort of straddling, like the, you know, there was this problem with um, I'll I'll say as I remember part of the issue, and then obviously you can elaborate that the the mainstream you know notion of of efficiency or equilibrium in certain settings was was uh, it would defeat the purpose of the of the thing. So like meeting with somebody you know for a, a cup of coffee and to have a discussion, in a sense, if you push the equilibrium construct too hard there'd be no reason because you would know exactly what the other person was going to say. But yet you did need to know, no, we're meeting at 10 a.m. at this lo- at this coffee shop. Otherwise, you know, so can you just speak a little bit about what you were trying to do with well, that notion of pattern coordination? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because uh, unbeknownst to any either of us at the time, uh, this this concept uh, of, of the open-endedness of discussion is big and night. Uh, and, um, uh, and so... Um, uh, although Knight doesn't uh, directly apply it to the formation of uh, of preferences, uh, it 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 could easily be applied there too. So the idea is that uh, you know the it, it, at least in the ordinary sense of the word, it's not a discussion if everything anyone is going to say in the midst of it is known beforehand. Uh, discussion is useful, and, and empirically, it's a fact that as people discuss things, uh, new ideas pop in their heads, and they say things that they may not have thought of saying before. Uh, and uh, so uh, there is a certain degree, greater or lesser, of uncertainty about what the outcome of a discussion is going to be. So in some sense, uh, and it depends obviously on who's discussing or what's being discussed, the outcome of discussion could be quite uncertain. And yet a lot of the framework around it is not uncertain. Uh, for example, uh, the general topic might be certain. The, the meeting place, as we said in the book, would be certain. Uh, the persons involved would be certain. Uh, and maybe even what's going to come out of it in the sense of a particular decision. In other words, it may be that it's understood that after this discussion, either the person will have his dissertation approved or not approved, Mm -hmm. but you can't predict what's going to happen in the discussion. And therefore, in some way, you can't predict the outcome, though you can predict that it will be either yes or no. So what we're saying by pattern prediction is that there are aspects of phenomena which will be predictable and then other aspects will not be predictable. And you might want to call the predictable aspects the kind of pattern uh, of, the, of, the, um, of the outcome, mm-hmm. uh, although you could use other words uh, for that. Uh, I found, in a way, that, that concept is useful, uh, as I found out maybe more recently, when talking about abstraction or generality in law, in the sense that uh, law can make general rules, but how those general rules will apply in particular circumstances may be un- uncertain. So that the pattern, the rule is known, but the detail of the application may be uncertain from you know the ex ante perspective. And that's so, why you need judges, right? And that's why you need judges to right. fill in. Right. Okay. 
All right. Well, I've 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 held you over when I said we would, so I've oh, violated okay. the pattern coordination. That's that's okay. <laughs> I enjoyed it. So th- thank you so much, uh, so folks, for links on what we've talked about. Go to bobmurphyshow.com/slash one sixty nine. My guest has been Mario Rizzo. Mario, thanks for your time and everything you've done for Austrian economics. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Glad to see you again. I see you even even this way. Yeah. <laughs> You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.